Did you hear that one? There's one that goes... Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> this is Rachel. She lives in a house surrounded by yeah, birds in, in Australia. Yeah, we get possums and koalas and... It's a long way from Northern Ireland and the 1970s. Just the birds are... They just sound... The whole... It just... Everything sounds different. Forty years ago this year, her grandfather, Thomas, lived happily with his young family in a house in Belfast. A lot of people in Belfast still remember the name, even if it's just because they remember the name from when they were kids. Thomas had moved from Germany. He was head of the Grundig Electronics Plant. He was also the West German Consul for Northern Ireland. It's in a lot of people's lifetimes, and as I said, a lot of people in Belfast still remember the name. Thomas lived in a bungalow with his wife Ingeborg and her two teenage daughters, Gabriella and Renate. But yeah, they still remember the name, Niedermeyer. Police started an extensive search near Cushendall in the Glens of Antrim today for the body of German industrialist Thomas Niedermeyer, who was kidnapped in December 1973. The search for the body of Mr. Thomas Niedermeyer, the Grundig executive and German consul who disappeared from his home in Dunmerry almost five years ago, has been called off for the day. I was just 18 when Thomas Niedermeyer was kidnapped. The name and the story has stayed with me. Mr Niedermeyer was managing director of the Grundig company and was declared officially dead by a German court in 1976. A year ago on my radio programme, I mentioned the kidnapping and death of Thomas Niedermeyer. The police mounted a major operation where armed guards kept watch as the searchers began work. They brought in specially trained dogs and concentrated on a narrow triangular field. This afternoon, the dogs indicated two possible grave sites. A few days later, I received a letter. It said the kidnapping and death of Thomas Niedermeyer was not the end of that story. Far from it. Detective Chief Superintendent William Mooney, who is heading the investigation, said today and extensive inquiries had been made and that the investigation had never really ceased. I discovered that this isn't just about a horrendous kidnapping and a murder. This is about how a crime like that can reverberate for generations. There is no end to this story. Mr Niedermeyer vanished from his home in Glengolan Gardens on the 27th of December 1973, apparently abducted by two men. Off Thomas's family left behind that night, within two decades, none of them would be alive. Despite numerous searches by the police, no trace of him has ever been found. Someone's put on their blower back there, lovely. <laughs> the letter said you should try to find the only surviving relatives of Thomas Niedermeyer he has two grandchildren Gabriella had married and raised two daughters in England and these two sisters have never spoken publicly I'm Rachel Robbins and we're in Adelaide, Australia okay. my name is Tanya Williams-Powell and we're currently in Torquay in Devon Chapter 1, The Discovery. I've got a load of newspaper clippings here that um, I found in the house when I cleaned out my dad's house. It would have been 20 when my dad died and we cleared out the house. That's when all these surfaced. They were in, um, in a folder in the desk, so I was, my mum must have kept them for 
you know, 30 years. So they're all a bit yellowed and, and old, but they're from, you know, 1974, 1975, both local Northern Irish and, and English papers. Top executive Thomas Niedermeyer was almost Niedermeyer certainly kidnapped, was almost by, certainly kidnapped provision by the Provisional IRA as part of a desperate ransom bid which was turned down flat by the government in a detailed reappraisal of the whole Niedermeyer mystery. They just chronicled the kidnapping, the discovery of the body and then a little bit about what happened to my grandmother. Last week, the gentle 43-year-old woman who last saw her husband when he brought roses to her hospital bedside the day before he was abducted, said at her home in Belfast. For almost a year I had hope that I would see him again. Now I have none. As she sat hand in hand with Gabriella amid Christmas decorations, Mrs Niedermeyer fought back tears and continued. My life has been devastated because I just do not know what happened to my husband. If only somebody could tell me. Someone knows, so why can't they tell me? Someone was keeping him. I say to them, tell me if you have killed him. None of it made sense to the young girls, but there in the yellow faded print was the names and pictures of their family. Grandma, Grandad, Renate, Mum, Dad. I just can't remember. See, that's the one. This one here is the one um, where they took a photo at the grave site. Um, that's 1980. So that's probably the, the, the latest one, actually. So that's got both my grandmother, my mother, and and my auntie. So that's after his body was discovered and, and then they got to bury him. This bundle of newspaper clippings has now passed down three generations, from grandmother to daughter to granddaughter. My mum never talked about this. Um, all we knew as kids was that he'd been killed by the IRA and that was it that's all we were ever told I absolutely felt a compulsion to find out what the story was especially because of you know for one the impact it had on the family following on from it and the fact that there was nobody nobody left really to to tell us what had happened when my sister said she was going to put an advert into to newspapers to see if she could find out about the Niedermeyers I thought it was a wonderful idea all the research gave me a huge amount of understanding of all three, why they basically separated to different parts of the world, why they didn't really talk much, why we only saw Renata once or twice, and the same with her grandmother. The, the fractions between the three of them, we never really understood until we got into it and understood, you know, there was blame and there was repercussions and there was guilt and all of that just really fractured the whole family. I think everything would have changed. My mum would have been 19, Inneborg would have been probably 15. Um, sorry, Renati would have been 15 at that time. So I think, yeah, absolutely everything changed. Chapter 2, That Night. I think the Niedermeyers were happy in Belfast. I think they were... Uh, a happy family um, from the information I have received from people who knew them. You know, certainly um, I think Thomas was quite a hard worker, so they probably, the neighbours and whatnot, didn't really see um, much of him because he was at work a lot. But I think um, both Inneborg and, and the two girls were very liked and friendly and, and sociable. It was a major news story at the time, back in 1970s Ireland, but when I mention Aida Meyer now, very few remember. 
Ernie Mara was kidnapped from his home here at Glen Golan Gardens around a quarter past 11 last night. As an 18-year-old, I remember news crews coming from all over the world. I can still see a young wife, frail beyond her years, dignified, appealing in her broken English for the return of her husband. A neighbour living opposite said he looked out of his front room, living room window and saw a car parked outside the German consul's house with its brake lights on. Beside it stood Herr Niedermeyer talking to two men. They apparently talked for about five minutes, but when the German consul tried to return to his house, he was seized by the two men, bundled into the car and driven off at speed. All I know about that night is I know um, Inneborg was in hospital, sick at that, at that time anyway. There was a knock on the door and there were two men um, outside quite late at night um, who said that they had hit Thomas's car that was parked in the street and that there was some damage. Um, he went out to investigate and have a look at the car and as he walked around the back of the car, they bundled him into the boot, closed it and drove off. Ms Houston, you're Secretary of the Works Committee. What sort of a man was Mr Niedermeyer? How was he looked on by the workers here? Well, he was looked on with respect because despite all our differences, uh, we look on Grundig as a model factory. It has been held up by the trade union movement as a place where Catholic and Protestants work together equally. And we really are very stunned about this situation because why should it have happened here in our factory when there are other factories who do not practice the same as we do, and we want this man released. They took him to a house not far away, still in the suburbs, um, and um, put him into a room, tied him up. And I can't, I don't know what the time frame was, but I know that at one stage he started making an awful lot of noise and screaming and, and tried to escape, and they um, hit him over the head with the barrel of the gun, and then pushed his head down into the mattress, um, and he died. Um, I think the coroner's report said that the, the the blow to the head would have killed him. It would it um, caused a bleed on the brain that killed him. And on behalf of the trade unionists of Northern Ireland, I call on them with our works committee, along with Mr Blaze, who we were in touch with, to demand from one end of this province to the other that such kidnapping, if it is a kidnapping, is terminated and Mr Niedermeyer's released. What's been the attitude of the workers here in Grundig to the news of the kidnapping? Well, they're a bit stunned, to be quite honest. They realise the seriousness of it and they realise maybe that the Germans across in Germany could decide to take the whole Grundig organisation out of the place. And uh, is that the working people are rather perturbed about it? I don't know anything about what happened to them that night. Um, um, they would have been on their own at 15 and 19 with the mother in hospital and the father kidnapped um, I have no information as to what happened the rest of that night and, and who looked after them I think who answered the door that night was integral to the relationship between the three of them until such time as, as they all passed away and I think it's integral because the blame and, and the guilt for the one of them who, who opened the door is too much to bear, I think, and that was too much to bear for, for my grandmother, and I believe that 
that's why the relationship was so strained, because she wasn't home to control the situation. Then there's a... I'll read this. Top executive Thomas Niedermeyer was almost certainly kidnapped by a group of the provisional IRA as part of a desperate ransom bid which was turned down flat by the government... And a detailed which was turned down flat the by the government. The intriguing series of events which led up to and followed the kidnapping is never likely to be resolved. But senior members of the Northern Ireland Security Forces and top Scotland Yard detectives who helped with the hunt in London are convinced that a demand was made for the transfer of Marion and Dolores Price to jails in Ulster as the sole condition of Mr Niedermeyer's release. They believed when this was rejected after discussions at the highest government levels, the abductors killed Mr Niedermeyer and neatly disposed of his body. They also suspect the government was forced to call in a specialist intelligence service to employ a number of particularly dirty tricks in order to cover up the rejection of the demand, which, had it leaked out, would have blown Anglo-German relations sky-high at a time when Britain needed the support of Chancellor Brandt in Europe. Although the police file of the massive investigation into the affair still lies open on the desk of RUC Detective Superintendent Bill Edgar, last week 41-year-old Edgar said in Belfast, It is though the man walked 25 yards from his front door and then fell off the end of the earth. Mrs Niedermeyer, have you got ever any information by the British or German government about the demand the kidnappers has done already two days after the kidnapping? No, I have never heard anything about it. Uh, what is your opinion? Shouldn't you have one of this information? I suppose I should have had some information. Uh, before the release uh, was made by the Home Secretary, there were a lot of speculations about private or business reasons of the kidnapping. Well, that has to stop now. There is no private or business behind it. I see. Mrs. Niedermeyer, what is your feeling at the moment? Is your husband dead or alive? My feeling is he is alive. Chapter 3. The Wedding. And then this one, this is a whole big page article about mm. their wedding. That's my mum on the front page. In 1974, within a year of her father's kidnapping, Gabriella married a member of the RAF. But the carefully preserved newspaper clippings tell another story. This was uh, four days before their wedding. Do you want me to read it? A young German girl will walk down the aisle of an English church on Saturday for a full-dress RAF wedding, but a shadow will cloud Gabrielle Niedermeyer's happiness, for on December 27th last year, her father walked out of his home in Glengoland Gardens, Suffolk, Belfast and became the focus of one of the biggest diplomatic kidnap mysteries... ..and became the focus of one of the biggest diplomatic kidnap mysteries in history. Gabriella's wedding at a Methodist chapel somewhere in England has been kept a family secret for fear of reprisals from the group who abducted and almost certainly killed Mr Thomas Niedermeyer. Mrs Niedermeyer is soon to start legal moves in Germany to have her husband officially declared dead. That means, under German law she will be entitled to receive an earnings-related state pension. So far, she has been maintained by Grundig, who have supported her financially and set no time limit on how long she can stay in the bungalow on the edge of the IRA stronghold of Andersonstown. One of the things Mrs Niedermeyer says she is dreading most is the Christmas period, 
which she is planning to spend quietly at home with her younger daughter Renata, who is still at school. We were invited out to Christmas dinner, but I could not really face up to it, said Mrs Niedermeyer. I just want Christmas to be over. I want it gone and all the memories with it. Chapter 4, The Illegal Dump and the Bogus Environmental Group His body was dumped in a forest on the outskirts of Belfast. The IRA either paid or, or requested that all these people um, dumped their rubbish on that particular site. And so over the course of six or seven years, people went and dumped rubbish and more and more and more, and it just built up into a, a big tip, which was over the, the, the body. So they buried him face down in a shallow grave. And somebody overheard one of the men involved bragging at a, at a pub one night that um, they'd buried him face down so that he, could, he that, so that he could dig himself further down. And I think that's what then started the, the chain of events that led to the police finally finding his body. Because they, did, they couldn't just go and start digging up this site, there were seven years' worth of rubbish to try and get through. They couldn't just start digging without raising suspicion, so they set up a fake environmental group whose mission was to clean up the local area for the local people. And by doing that, they managed to clear the site and finally get down to ground level, and that's when they found his body. Two men were convicted in connection with the kidnapping and death of Thomas Niedermeyer. Both served a short time in prison. Mr Niedermeyer has been missing for six years or more now, and uh, we feel there's a possibility that the remains found here today could be Mr Niedermeyer's. We don't know, but we will eventually uh, identify the body. Two men were later convicted in connection with the kidnapping and death of Thomas. Both served a short time in prison. And she put a little um, thank you note in the paper, just thanking the Irish people for all their support. Um, She put um, this little article. Actually, it's just a little thank you from her in the paper that said, In the past few days, the sad story of my husband, Thomas, has been finally and completely told... You were kind enough to mention my family and I in your editorial on Tuesday evening. These words were of great consolation to me and my daughters. You were right. The past seven years have not been happy ones. But now we feel that the past is behind us and my daughter Renate and I would like to thank the Irish people for supporting us during these years. Through your kindness and understanding, we were able to remain among you and make a life for ourselves. In no way do we hold the Irish people responsible for anything that happened. My family was caught up in events that were beyond our control and theirs. Mrs. Inneborg-Niedermeyer. So that must have been after his body was found. And um, I think it was pretty much at that point that she decided to return to Germany. She must have got the closure that she needed in Northern Ireland and, and went back. Chapter 5. A Room with a Sea View. I think many thought that once his body had been found, that that would lay to rest the whole story. It would close the book on on it, but um, it didn't. Some say that Renata opened the door to these men who took Thomas away, and others, and I particularly remember my mother when I was about 13, saying that she was the one who opened the door 
and therefore, because she was the eldest daughter, our grandmother blamed her for his death because she was the one who let these people in to take him away. And that affected all of them really very severely because if they hadn't opened the door, he may still have been with them and happy families. My grandmother moved back to Germany and she was there for 10 years. And then in 1990, she travelled back to Northern Ireland um, and just walked into the sea and killed herself. I was um, 12. Yeah, I was 12. Which actually is weird for me because I thought I was younger. But seeing the date on this paper, um, the date says 1990. Do you want me to read them? It took almost a full week to identify her. Her death barely got a mention in the newspapers. It wasn't spotlighted on the TV news. The death of Ingeborg, Thomas Niedemar's wife, passed Ireland by. It was June and Italian 90 was in full flow. Once upon a time, her name had been on everybody's lips. Her picture splashed worldwide. Her name was Mrs Inneborg Niedemeyer. Her body had washed up on the shore of Greystones in the Republic of Ireland. She had just walked into the sea to drown. She had come back to the Irish Isle to die because that was where, a full 17 years earlier, her husband had been killed by the IRA. He was 45 when he died, an attractive man whose equally beautiful blonde wife had two lovely teenage daughters one of whom had to identify her mother's body this week. His wife did not immediately leave the country which killed her beloved husband. For 11 years she stayed. She returned from West Germany three weeks ago. She booked into a hotel in Bray County Wicklow and asked for a room overlooking the sea, but without single beds, because she told hotel staff her husband was dead and such a setup would upset her. Then she walked into the sea. No mere words of mine can convey the pain this woman experienced, the 17 years of torture she endured, but this much must be said. Let her name not be forgotten. Let it be added to the list of IRA atrocities, because 62-year-old Ingeborg Niedermeyer did not commit suicide. She was murdered by the IRA, as surely as if they had put a gun to her head and shot her at point-blank range. And that's a pretty harsh story, actually. <laughs> that was in the sun on June 22nd, 1990. Looking out the sea, but without single beds. So that's... Um, Again, it just shows just how incredibly affected she still was by all this at that time. I think the fact that she went back to do so is quite a big statement as to how she felt about the country, that she, you know, she, she considered that her home. And she, you know, that was the resting place of her husband as well. So to travel back there was, was a very big statement on her behalf. I'm not sure that she was ever really happy after after all of this. I don't think she ever found any peace. We learnt about her grandmother's death when 
we were on holiday in Tenerife. And I remember my mum getting a call saying that she needed to go and identify the body. My mother was the one who identified her body. I recall my mum going back to sort out the death certificate and everything and her coming back and telling us about the funeral. Unfortunately, she was the only one to attend our grandmother's funeral. I recall my mum coming home and saying they said she just walked into the sea. The last time Ingeborg was in the headlines was almost ten years previously. It was her last appeal for her husband. All that remains is that damaged old tape. I'd like to make my last and final appeal to the people who took my husband. Asked for anything. If my husband is alive, they could ask for anything. They would get it. And if my husband is dead, why don't they tell me? It's so hard to live with not knowing. You live from day to day. You wait and you give up hope. And then after a few days, you have still, have still hope. It goes up and down. It's so hard. Chapter 6, Renate, the youngest daughter, and releasing a wild tiger in Surrey. Although they said she'd come back to die a full 17 years after her husband had been taken, so if he was taken in 73, then yeah, it is, it's 1990, but... So, mm, so she died in 1990. So Renate must have died in either 91, 92 or 93. So not long, not long after. Renate was Thomas Niedemar's youngest daughter. She never attended her mother's funeral. And after their father's death, the two daughters grew apart. I, I believe that Renata went to South Africa probably to get as far away as she could from the memories of, of her childhood and what had happened and I can understand that completely. I never really go back to where we used to live and avoid that at all costs because it brings back too many memories. I know absolutely nothing about her life, who she was as a person, what she did. Whether I, I know she was never married and never had kids, but I don't know any more than that. Renata, I think, lived in Surrey for a while and I don't know what was going on with her, but we understand she had an owl, a snake, a, a leopard or a tiger or something. And I, she, I understand when she moved to South Africa, she couldn't find them home, so let them loose in the wild. She killed herself in 1990. I don't know what year it was, but it was after after Inneborg died. So it went, and it can't have been long after. It had to be somewhere between 1990 and 1994 that she died in South Africa. The only surviving relatives of Thomas, granddaughters Tanya and Rachel, don't even know where their aunt is buried or who attended her funeral. As adults, they have never heard her young voice 
and her gentle northern accent. My father was found, it all happened very, very fast. I was just telephoned one morning uh, at work by the police saying that could I please come to the station and they weren't going to tell me what it was over the phone. It was a fairly good idea. So we arrived down and uh, they were very kind. They explained what the situation was to me and I waited around uh, until it was confirmed that it was my father's body that had been found. Curiously enough, actually, as the crow flies, it was about a mile from our house, and I had passed the spot many, many, many times. And it was rather ironic to think he'd been there all the time. And it was, in fact, under a rubbish tip, which I was quite offended at. I mean, they could have chosen somewhere else that wasn't as, as gory as that. Uh, my mother was relieved whenever she heard. She was very distressed, I think, at, at um, uh, where he was found again under a rubbish tip in a a very shallow grave, it, it did disturb her. But uh, she was very, very relieved that he'd been found. Um, we were called again to the police station to identify bits of clothing, which we in due course did. And then I think it was a few days after that that my father's funeral took place. It happened very, very quickly, and I don't think any of us really had time to think. What with within days of the body being found, there were funeral arrangements to make. I mean, after seven years, you don't think of things like that. So in due time he was buried and um, as my father's coffin was being lowered into the grave she um, took a rose from a wreath and threw it onto the coffin and uh, she was in a complete and absolute daze at that stage. Uh, it, it took a great deal out of her. I left early, as I say, immediately after that and a friend drove me home and then I went home to my own cottage. and. Uh, Oh, fine. Two days after that, I was, at least immediately after that, I did all the things I usually have to. But it was two days after that, for the life of me, I couldn't get up. It seemed as though I didn't have a bit of strength in me, so I stayed in bed all day. Chapter 7 Our Mother Gabriella, the Eldest Daughter Well, <laughs> God, I don't know where to even start. Um, my mum, my mum was just a beautiful person who was completely devoted to her family. She loved my dad. She adored both me and my sister, and she she just devoted her whole life to us. She she was yeah, she was phenomenal. Uh, our mum was. Probably the kindest person. <laughs> Sorry. She wanted to be the best mother that she could. And I know she loved us with all her heart. And she was the kindest, most wonderful person I've ever, ever known. Sorry. I never used to get emotional until I had my daughter. The type of grief that you would normally would for losing a family member, we, we felt the kind of grief that we felt for our mum, that she was upset. She was now the sole survivor. 
at that stage, you know, she'd, she'd lost her whole family. That was it, her whole family was gone. She was, by that time, the sole survivor. She was aware that all three of her family members had died by the age of 40, and this was her 40th year in 94. I think it was about to be her 40th year. Um, there were other things going on in the family at the time as well, which perhaps on the surface had more of an impact on on the reason that she did it, to be honest. But I think being the sole survivor and living with what she had all those years had meant that emotionally she couldn't really cope with what was going on in our family. The fact that the three female deaths did come in quite close succession, probably in later years, um, made me question it. I think at the time of my mum's death, everything else just paled in comparison. I don't think I thought about Tobis, about Inneborg, about Renate at all. Um, there was just so much in my brain. Everything was just focused on my mum. So I don't think the links were ever made at that stage. My mum was, was very depressed for years, to be honest, but the the depression got very severe. She had already, um, two weeks before, made an attempt. She, I would say, probably learnt from the mistakes she made on that attempt and made sure the next time that there was no going back. We knew that she'd made an attempt. We were kept fully informed by our father what was going on at that time. I'm not sure why um, I was 17, my sister was 15. One of the things my mum said to me not long before she died was that my family don't live beyond 40. Our mum committed suicide actually, I believe it was over Easter weekend. She disappeared on the Thursday. I remember, I remember because I was at my boyfriend's that day and I came home to an extremely angry father who thought that I was supposed to be home a lot earlier who, who said that she'd disappeared. Um, they found her um, on the Sunday, Easter Sunday. They'd had police helicopters up looking for her the day before and my sister and I were actually out riding our horses on the Saturday and saw one of the helicopters go past and we said to ourselves, they may be looking for mum. So she was found on, on the Sunday. My dad and I went to identify her on the Monday. I have to say, um, in, in the two weeks between my mum's first attempt and her second, our focus was on trying to keep her happy. She, she actually became relatively open with me about what was going on for her emotionally during those weeks. The night that I came home from my boyfriend's and told, was told that she disappeared, I knew that she was already dead that second he said it. I knew she was, she was already gone, so it was just a matter of finding her. 
she'd been putting on a front to my father, I would believe, that she was feeling a bit better and that she was coping a lot better. And I think it was the first day that he'd actually let her out by herself. And she told him she was going shopping. And that was it, she was gone. Gabrielle, I think there might well be the suggestion implicit in that that neither the police nor yourself nor the family really have any idea of what happened to your father. Is, is that so? Yes, it is. Gabriella never talked to her daughters, Tanya and Rachel, about that night in 1973. She never mentioned it. We just don't know what's happened. The police haven't been able to find anything. They've never known there was a recording of their mother, an interview when she was just 19, a reluctant talker. Is that, in a sense, why you've decided to put out another appeal today? We've got to do something. There was also the line um, that it was, in some way, a personal matter. There was some personal grudge no. involved. There's nothing there at all. My father didn't have any enemies over here or in Germany. And he was always said to be a very fair man. So there wasn't anything in the personal way to cause this. Can you give me some impression of uh, what life is like for yourself and your family and your mother? Well, it's not very easy. Um, my sister and I find it hard during the day. She goes to school and I go to college. People know us. You know, we find people pointing to you. My mother is even worse off because she's instantly recognised. And, well, apart from that, you know, sitting in the evening watching television. It's just empty, because usually my father was with us, and now he's not. Do you listen to news broadcasts, yes. averaging? <laughs> More often than before. What are you hoping for there? Oh, so somebody will say something. Somebody finally decide that there's no point in just keeping quiet. You were very close to your father, were you? We all were. We're quite, you know, very close family. You would prefer to know, would you? Yes. Would that, in a sense, be something it a would, relief? It would be a relief to know that my father is dead or that he is alive, one way or the other. What do you think? Well, I firmly believe that he is alive, and until somebody can prove to me he's not, I'll continue to believe that. Gabrielle, it's, it's just possible um, that there may never be an explanation putting it at its worst. How much do you fear that? I think it's the worst thing that could happen. Chapter 8 The Grieving Husband My mother committed suicide in 1994 and my father committed suicide in 1999. He was someone who, I believe just couldn't cope living by himself. It was it was very hard. I was living um, actually in Torquay at the time. Rachel was at uni and he, again, he chose a specific date and time. He had actually been telling me for six months that that's what he was going to do. Um, yeah, my, my dad had, had, I think, been trying to prepare me. Um, he knew that I would be understanding about it. Strange thing is, I always felt that I understood completely why my mum 
committed suicide. At the time, he never, he, he couldn't understand why anybody would ever do such a horrendous thing and actually tried to hide that from friends and acquaintances and, and work colleagues. He didn't want anybody to know the circumstances of her death. But after a number of years, he himself fell into a depression and finally started understanding. I think he felt that I would understand his reasons for it. So, yeah, he, he pre-warned me for about six months. Ne never told me when or how, but he, he did tell me that he was going to be doing it. There isn't much connection. Um, I don't think my father was particularly enamoured by an abug, um, or an otter for that matter. Um, our lives were revolved purely around his family. But I don't know whether they... they I wouldn't say inspired, but he, he got something from them. Chapter 9. Today. My mother was wonderful but fragile, I feel, and I think that fragility came from her father being taken so cruelly from her. Um, and I'm sure in quiet times she, she would think about that. I miss my parents desperately and they weren't taken as cruelly as as he was and I'm sure in quiet moments that would have really got to her. You know, she it, it wasn't because of what happened with her family history but I think with, with suicide... Um, I think once a member of your family has committed suicide, it plants the seed in your brain that it's a viable option. And I think that kind of, you know, I, I, that happens across the board in, 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 in families around the world, um, that there seems to be a link between a suicide by a family member and that heightens your, your, your risk. Um, so I think, you know... I, she was absolutely affected by everything that happened um, to her father and her mother, um, but it, it wasn't the cause. It wasn't the sole cause, anyway, of what happened to her, but it, it certainly probably planted a seed. I did know the name of Thomas Naidemeyer, kidnapped and killed and buried in Belfast. I did not know that Ingeborg Naidemeyer also died buried in Germany. His two daughters, Renate and Gabriella, also died, buried in South Africa and England. Having a child of your own um, gives you a whole new perspective on your parents and the choices they make and, and the way that they parented you. And I think now that I have a child, I have a much deeper understanding and compassion and feeling for both my parents and then what they must have been dealing with you know when you're little you look at your parents and you think that they're so old and together and with it and now you know I'm as old as my mum was when she had kids going I'm still a kid I have no idea what I'm doing or whether the decisions I'm making are the right ones but yeah <laughs> you were very close to your father were you we are, we are quite 
I'm very close family. Um, I have to apologise if you do hear any gurgling in the background. My eight-month-old baby, Cordelia, has um, decided that she'd like to be rather vocal at the moment because she's not getting my full attention. And, yeah, it's just so, it's just so tragic, that whole, that whole side, that whole need of my family, just such a, such a tragic chain of events that, that led to that whole family being gone. There are now two little girls, Thomas Naida Mar's great-grandchildren, one in Australia and one in England, who don't yet know their family history. But someday, their mothers, Tanya and Rachel, will take down the newspaper clippings and tell them of that Christmas week, 1973, and what happened to family called the Naida Myers. We take life pretty much factually, I think, with... Ingeborg's death and then Renata's and mums and dads, we've learnt that you, you deal with it, you grieve, you, you deal with it, you get on with your life because if you just sit and wallow in, in pity, you're going to go the same way and you, you have to get on and live your own life and not try to live for, for the people who are no longer there. Nothing ever made more sense. Um, it, it filled in some of the, the knowledge gaps but it never made sense, and I don't think it ever will make sense. Um, but it certainly... I don't think people do really appreciate the, you know, the, the long-lasting effects this kind of thing has. And, and not just in, in this scenario, but in, in, in all areas, I guess. Any kind of tragedy that happens to one person and the, that ripple effect that it, that it has throughout the years on everybody else. 